This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. Parents these days are under a great deal of pressure to be perfect. And from psychologists to social scientists and journalists and weekend bloggers, everybody has got an opinion on the do's and don'ts for raising healthy, well-adjusted, let's not forget polite, children in today's fast-paced world. But where does that leave us parents? Uh, Unfortunately, too often that leaves us lacking in confidence and ill-equipped and, this is no surprise to anybody, completely overwhelmed. Some of us, and I know that I'm not alone in this, think that it's really about time for parents to get off of the perfection path and get back to the real job of parenting, which is to grow a grown-up. Part of that involves just simply learning to trust your intuition and your instincts and also to develop a strategy, an intentional strategy, for meeting each child's unique needs. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a professional parent educator and a speaker and a family coach and perhaps most of all, the mother of five, about a program that she's developed called Parenting on Track. She has helped countless parents create a respectful and peaceful family life, which in turn, as you might expect, prepares kids for a healthy adulthood. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start exploring the Parenting on Track program and a number of other no-nonsense approaches to how to grow a grown-up when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat after this from the MrDad.com radio network. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, to your own parents, to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of the show is Vicki Hofel, who's the author of The Straight Talk on Parenting, a no-nonsense approach on how to grow a grown-up. Vicki, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I should say, again, that you were, you were here a couple of years ago when your previous book, Duct Tape Parenting, came out, which was well-received by us anyway. I uh, hope, it, hope it did well. It did. Good. Good. So... How how do you decide to follow up on something that was as broad and all-encompassing as duct tape parenting? Good question. Uh, we didn't have any plans to do a second book, and then we started getting emails from parents who really resonated with the idea of a less is more approach. Um, I think it started to speak to them on an intuitive level, Many parents um, told us that as they started to read the book, their heads were nodding, yes, like, I I think I knew that, but I forgot about it or haven't talked to anybody about it. And 
they started asking questions, and we picked up a couple of themes in the questions that we were being asked. And two of the major themes were, how do you really make this work? The, the idea, the concept of less is more resonates, but what does that look like practically in daily life with kids? And the second thing was this um, thread that uh, parents communicated about. It almost seems to us, Vicki, like what you're suggesting is that although we're living with small children, the job of parenting is about what happens once they leave. And I realized that that was another major theme that maybe hadn't been addressed in the parenting um, conversation is this idea that really our job is to grow a grown-up. And that was the launching off space for the book. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I remember somebody asking me years ago in an interview about what what would constitute success for me as a parent. And I remember thinking, oh, I, I would like to, to have raised a decent human being, somebody who's going to make good choices when I'm not there to, to annoy them with, uh, with my advice. <laughs> exactly. I, I think in our, our most thoughtful moments as parents, we can look into the future and say to ourselves, I really, what I really want is to raise a person that I would want to be friends with, somebody whose company I would look forward to, someone who makes a difference in their community. And we lose sight of that, I think, in the day-to-day -day grind of parenting. But it, I, I think it brings a little bit of joy back. It certainly relieves some of the pressure that we all feel in trying to raise these perfectly polite kids. And it gives us 18 years to work on this masterpiece that we're going to send out into the world at 18. Tell us a little bit about the Parenting on Track program and how that fits into all of this. The, the Parenting on Track program was really developed as a way to um, teach live classes in communities in Vermont. And it became clear to us that a two-hour presentation where a topic would be introduced and strategies would be offered wasn't exactly what parents were looking for. What they wanted was a really comprehensive approach to raising kids and to kind of get away from the list of challenges that we face. So we're late getting out you know, at the house in the morning and the kids fight and they won't go to bed. And, and it just seemed overwhelming. And so the program was created as a result of, of what parents were asking us to do over here in Vermont. And, um, and I am lucky that I still get to teach this class on a regular basis. Is it a, a regular class? I mean, is it, I mean, a regular class meaning that there are people who come to more than one session, or is it a one session kind of a thing? No, it's six weeks. So we generally have between 30 and 120 people who register, and we spend the next six weeks together meeting one night a week for two hours, and we kind of unpack everything that's going on in their family, and then they begin to create a roadmap for where it is that they want to go and um, what kinds of attributes they want to foster in their kids and what kind of new parenting strategies they might want to introduce into the family that, you know, don't include timeouts and screaming and yelling and threatening. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very organic kind of class. 
where parents are allowed to, you know, try things and come back and let me know how it went, and we can make these small adjustments together. I'm curious about something here. I mean, when you're doing a regular parenting class, as you mentioned, you're you're giving people instructions on what to do in certain kinds of situations. It sounds like the way that you're describing it, that it's going to be a little bit of a different class for everybody. How do you manage to make that work when you're the instructor? Because, I mean, you're not, you know, you're guiding, I guess, people, but how, how does it work? So it, it's that's a great question. I think typically when we think of a parenting class, it's a group of parents sitting down with their pads of paper and pens and somebody is lecturing them on what to do and how to do it and what to say and when to say it. And our classes are very different. It's about teaching parents how to answer their own questions, how to gather information from their kids that will help them decide on the next course of action. It's about reestablishing a real sense of confidence in their parenting and that it's okay if they get something wrong, that there's this thing called an apology, and children love to hear their parents apologize. So if they make a less than perfect uh, parenting decision in a stressful moment, the, the resolution is often just to sit the kids down and say, boy, that didn't go well, and I'm sorry about that. Let's try something else. So the power of the class is really that the parents are going home, trying things, learning things about themselves and their children. They're able to come back and process, and then they go back out and practice. So you can imagine that after six weeks of support and encouragement and practice, parents have a very different feel around their parenting and how they want to proceed. Do you hear from people a year later who have done this with, to see whether the, the messages stick or whether the strategies continue to evolve or they're able to answer their own questions as time goes on, or, or does the, the effect wear off? I, you know, I think it's probably uh, 50-50. It's um, like anything else, it takes practice. And in a busy world, it's easy to, you know, kind of put a strategy on the back burner and go back to the nagging that used to get you out of the door. But over the last 25 years, we have had the good fortune of hearing from people whose kids are now graduating from college who say that what they most hoped for when their children were seven, they're beginning to see the results of all that hard work now as their kids, you know, go out and create a life of meaning and value and fulfillment as young adults. So, you know, we encourage our community of parents to talk to us about their successes and their challenges. Like, so what isn't working and what can we do differently to support parents who can't quite get a feel for this, this less is more approach to parenting? Take us to a little bit of the one of the first chapters, From Footprints to Blueprints, which is talking about some of the things we were just talking about, but give us a few more of the details that are in that, that part of it. So, yeah, so this is, a, this is kind of at the core of everything I teach, this idea about relationship development. In the book, I refer to it as a relationship blueprint. I think sometimes as parents, we miss that, the relationship we have with our children becomes their blueprint for all the other relationships that they're going to enter into as, you know, kindergartners and as 25-year-olds. And I identify a couple of places that parents can make some small adjustments that ensure that their kids have a better sense of what makes a healthy relationship 
and what constitutes an unhealthy one. So that as they spend more and more time outside of their own homes, their radar is tuned towards healthy relationships. People who communicate in a certain tone of voice, uh, a resonance to respect and cooperation. And they may be more inclined to steer clear of people who are overly bossy or who use manipulation tactics to try and get their own way. And I think it's comforting for parents to know that they can help their children learn to identify healthy and unhealthy relationships as they spend more time outside of their home. I'm talking with Vicki Hofel, who's the author of The Straight Talk on Parenting, a no-nonsense approach on how to grow a grown-up. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Vicki about the straight talk. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? How's that cook? How do you change the ringtone? How much does this cost? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life, except... Any questions? Um, no. At the doctor's office, ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Vicki Hofel, who's the author of The Straight Talk on Parenting, a no-nonsense approach on how to grow a grown-up. And before the break, we were just talking about kind of the, the essence of the whole thing, creating a blueprint. And you talk then about, about something else, which is, is incredibly important, about independence and how imperative that is. What, what kind of independence are you talking about? Are you talking about the, the raising kids who are independent thinkers or parents who can make their own parenting decisions? But to define your use of, of independence. Yeah, I think those are both great definitions. It's empowering the children to become more independent and self-reliant in their lives. And it's also helping parents become more independent in their parenting choices. Um, You know, if you consider that there are almost a million parenting blogs on the market, it's easy to see how a parent could get easily lost and dependent on someone else for information about how to make parenting decisions. So, you know, it's both things. From the child's perspective, it's about helping the parents understand that there is a way to foster independence in their children when they're very young that that doesn't kind of throw them to the wolves. It's a small introduction that starts with choices and then teaching self-skills, allowing kids to kind of navigate through a, a day with their folks and give their parents clues as to whether they're someone who likes to take a bath or a shower or a child who prefers to have the same breakfast every morning or one that has an educated palate and wants to try something new. There are all these small ways that we can empower our children to become more independent. And with that comes a real sense of confidence in their own ability to know themselves and to articulate to others who they are, what they like, and what their preferences are. And if you can imagine that over the course of 13 years, you have kids entering middle school with this real sense that they're capable, that they have what it takes to solve problems, that they're resilient and they can bounce back. 
And as parents begin to trust themselves more in making their parenting decisions, they put more trust in their kids. So it's a win-win for the entire family. Now you're talking about kids who know themselves and know their preferences. Does it also require parents who go to the trouble of understanding their children on that level? Absolutely. I think, you know, we're really living in, in the perfect environment to look at our children almost like science projects and to ask ourselves, you know, what are the patterns that I see in my children? What are the things that cause them frustration? What are the things that come easily to them? And how can I leverage all of that information to support the emotional health of my kids, their physical development, and their social skills? And I oftentimes wonder if we're not capitalizing on the fact that all the really great information is in our homes all of the time. Um, and again, it's a great way for parents to connect to their kids. It builds a strong bond between parents and children. And it builds a real sense of trust in kids that their parents really know who they are and what's important to them. Now, even though you're talking about kind of overall strategies for parenting and how to make your own decisions and how to answer your own questions, you do talk about some specifics in the book, which are, are kind of the big specifics of probably every parent, if you had to write down a list of what the, the things are that are, are troubling you, morning meltdowns and bedtime routines and sibling swabbling, uh, squabbles and, and homework and things like that. Uh, is that why you put them in, because they're so universal? Yes, absolutely. Over the last 25 years, the, the same problems keep you know rising to the top. And so we thought it would be helpful to show parents that, you know, two different families struggling with the same uh, morning routine, um, you know, nightmare can handle it in two very different ways using the same set of questions and come up with a strategy that is designed specifically for not only the family but all the members of that family. And so we thought it was really important to give a lot of examples because, Sometimes that's where, you know, what parents are looking for is just walk me through this a couple of times till I get the feel of it. So it was really important to us that we used what we were hearing from the parents to give them what it was they were asking for. Well, give us a couple examples. Say that let's, let's take the the morning routine, getting people out of the house. It's, it seems like a horrible way to start your day sometimes because you start it with a, a fight and anger. And then you drop the kids off and everybody's not talking to each other. And, and, you know, you spend the rest of the day kind of wishing that things hadn't been that way. How yeah. do you how do you get past this whole morning thing or at least transform it into something that's tolerable for everybody? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I don't think there's anything worse for a parent than to, you know, leave with one of their kids crying and they knowing they were yelling at their four year old because they couldn't get the boots on. Um, so. Here's an example from my own life raising five very, very different kids. So what my husband and I said is, um, in terms of the morning routine, here's what we ask for, that everyone is in the car at 7.15 ready to go. So we kept it very simple. Oftentimes a parent will say, well, I want them to have eaten a good meal and brushed their teeth for two and a half minutes and made their bed. And it's like, okay, start easy. Make it easy on yourself. The goal is just to get out of the house at 7.15 tears or tantrums. And then you look at each one of your kids. So in my case, 
I had one child who would slide down the banister 15 minutes before he had to get in the car, quite happily having slept in the Batman outfit the night before, grabbed a granola bar, slid into the car, and was happy as a clam. I had one child who woke up at 4.30 in the morning to do her homework, read the paper, drink a little tea, maybe do a little yoga if she felt like it, and she was ready to enter the day. So part of my job was to give some structure to the morning routine, but then look at my children as individuals and say, how can I support who they are as human beings in order for all of us to reach our goal of being in the car at 715? And believe it or not, it's much easier than we think when we start to simplify. Now, over time, we did start saying things like, does everybody think it's reasonable that you have something to eat before you leave? And that turned into... Does it seem reasonable you'd have something healthy to eat before you leave? But that's part of the growing and learning process. So you're giving them a lot of say in what's going on, but you still have to, as, as the parent, when you have a kid who just will not get out of bed, or, of course, they'll get out of bed at some point, but they, you, know, you, you say, hey, get up, and then you walk away, you do something else, and you come back, and they're still sleeping. Uh, th- you know, there has to be some way of, of taking charge of the situation a little bit more, isn't there? Well, there is, but I recommend that in that moment you not make things worse. I think parents think that in that moment of conflict, it's a teachable moment. And in my experience, it is not a teachable moment. Uh, It's only going to lead to a power struggle. So what I recommend is that you take a snapshot of this problem that you're having. And when you're calm, you ask yourself, is there a character trait that I might want to help my child develop that would help make it easier for that child to get up in the morning on their own without me. And that gives me a positive place to start instead of saying, listen, if you don't get up, there's going to be, and then insert punishment or consequence, because then the relationship is tarnished again. So there's this idea that we have to make something happen in the red zone. And my advice is don't do anything. Just take a snapshot, sit the child down, and have a conversation about, listen, this is the expectation, and you're a part of this. So how would you set the morning up so that it was easier for you to get up on time and get Mm -hmm. out of the house? And truthfully, my experience is kids don't like to be stressed in the morning, and they don't like to be late at school. But something else is triggering their obstinance in that moment, and it's our job as the parent to sniff that out. You know, Vicki, we only have about another minute or so, but I want to just get your sense of of what's the the most persistently challenging issue that that parents bring to you. I think right now it's attitude. I think there was a time when, you know, we saw our teenagers begin to throw a little fast, and I think today we're seeing three-, four-, and five-year-olds speak to their parents as if they're second-class citizens. Yep, that would probably be one of them. Yeah. (laughs) Vicki Hoful is the author of The Straight Talk on Parenting, a no-nonsense approach on how to grow a grown-up. Vicki, thanks for joining us. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. My name is Dale Pazinski, and this is how I live United. I volunteer with United Way, helping the homeless in my community by teaching computer skills and helping them build a basic resume to save on their very own USB drive. It's huge when somebody says, hey, man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt. I live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott. A couple of weeks ago, Puxatawney Phil, you know, that famous four-legged groundhog weather prognosticator, he says we're in for another month of winter. And if the overtime is anything like the first part, we are going to be spending a lot of time indoors. Not to worry, though. We've got you covered with some great indoor winter activities. First up is the Nintendo eShop from Nintendo. If you're craving a new video game, but you don't want to actually go out and get it, you can check out the eShop. At the eShop, you're going to order the latest games and have them shipped or download them directly to your Wii U or your 3DS or your 2DS. There's also plenty of exclusive digital-only content. One especially nice feature is the ability to demo selected games before you buy them. The eShop gives you access to all of Nintendo's well-known franchises as well as some new indie gems. Whether you're buying for a seasoned gaming pro or a novice, old or young or adventurous or timid, there's something for everyone in your family. Prices vary widely, but the place to get it is nintendo.com eShop. Next up, we've got the headset for kids from Kids Gear, kids with a Z. Kids have an amazing capacity to do the same thing over and over again. And whether that's playing a game or watching a movie or listening to music, they just keep on doing it in, in a way that adults really can't grasp. Adults sometimes, though, need a break from all that repetition, especially when we're trapped in the house. When that happens, break out these headphones. The over-the-ear pads are a lot more comfortable than those in-ear buds, which always bug me anyway, and they're really easy to adjust. They've got a 3.5 millimeter, it's about an eighth of an inch, the standard kind of a thing, a plug, meaning that they're going to work in pretty much any phone, tablet, computer, or MP3 player. Unlike most headphones, Kids Gear headphones have Kids Control Volume Limit technology. That's a big mouthful, but what it means is that you can keep the volume well below danger levels. It doesn't let it go up too high. This particular Kids Gear model that we're talking about comes with a boom microphone, make, making it perfect for interactive games or just talking on the phone. Kids Gear also makes a nice headphone splitter cable, which lets you plug two headphones into one jack so you and your child can snuggle up and watch or listen to something together. The headphones and the splitters are available at retailers pretty much everywhere, $29.99 for the headphones and about 6 bucks for the splitter. And you can get that at kidsgear.com. Our next item is the Kid Fit Tracker from Xdoria. Getting exercise when you are snowed in can really be tough, but the Kid Fit can help. It's a simple, attractive wristband that measures your child's activity throughout the day. It also lets you use Bluetooth and a free iOS or Android app to establish fitness goals and set rewards for meeting them. The app can support multiple trackers from multiple kids, so you can have a whole bunch of them. Or adults, of course, can be in there, too, and it will keep track of everything. Besides activity, the KidFit also tracks your child's sleep, which is something we've talked about on the show, and it's extremely important. And it's, unfortunately, rather underrated. KidFit is splash-proof, which is a nice feature, which sets it apart from a lot of other competitors that are not splash-proof or waterproof at all, which, what's the point of, of having a tracker if you're not going to be able to get it wet? Our only complaint, though, is that there's no display. If you want to see how close you're getting to your goal, you're going to need to stop what you're doing, plug it into the app, and check it out on, on the computer or on the phone. It's available at Amazon and other retailers. It costs somewhere between $39 and $49. 
Next up is the mini snow markers from Alex Brands. And we love Alex, as you've heard us say many times before. Snow or not, sometimes you just have to get outside. And with snow markers, you can brighten those dreary days with a splash of color. I mean, who says snow has to be white anyway? Just add a little water to the colored powder, shake it, and you're ready to create. The set comes with five markers, but ten color packs, so you'll be able to illustrate pretty much all winter long. That'll last a long, long time. It's only $14.99, and you can get it at retailers all over the place or at alexbrands.com. And finally, the Zoku Ice Cream Maker from Zoku, Z-O-K-U. Ice cream cravings, you know, they can hit you pretty much any time, even when it's 20 below zero outside. And when that happens, all you need is Zoku's new ice cream maker, which lets you create individual portions of ice cream, custard or frozen yogurt or gelato or sorbet or sherbet, in as little as 10 minutes. comes with great-tasting recipes, but you can make up your own as well. costs 26 bucks, and you can get it at lots of retailers or at zokuhome.com. You can get more details on these products and a lot of other toys and games at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another toy review segment for you. But don't go anywhere quite yet, because, as you know, there's a lot more positive parenting coming up right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. My mom is a hero. She goes into burning buildings... She finds people inside who need to be saved, and then she helps them get out. Even when she can't breathe or see. Even when she's a little scared. My mom is a firefighter. She does great things. And the best thing she can do is come home. The U.S. Fire Administration, a part of FEMA, reminds you to protect the heroes who protect our lives. Have a smoke alarm on every floor. Test it monthly. Replace the battery yearly. Do your part to get out before firefighters have to come in. The fact is, 60% of all fire deaths occur in a home without a working smoke alarm. The good news is, that's a fact that can change. For more information, visit the U.S. Fire Administration at www.usfa.fema.gov. Working for a fire-safe America. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hi, welcome to the second part of today's positive parenting show on the American Forces Network. I'm Armin Brat. We may not realize it, but our children are hyper aware of money. They've got scores of questions about its nuances, and as parents, we don't always answer or even know how to answer those questions very well. But good parenting means talking about money with our kids much more often than we do. When parents avoid these kinds of conversations, we lose a tremendous opportunity not just to model important financial behavior, but also to imprint some lessons about what their family cares about most. And it isn't always about money, even though money can be a very important thing. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an author and personal finance columnist about the traits and the virtues that embody making kids kind of the opposite of spoiled. And he's going to share with us how to embrace the topic of money in a way that can help 
us as parents raise kids who are a lot more generous and a lot less materialistic. The traits I'm talking about are things like modesty and patience and generosity and perspective. Those are all qualities that we hope our young kids will carry with them out into the world when they become grown-ups themselves. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about the connection between money and values and how to raise young adults who are grounded and financially wise beyond their years when our show continues right after this. There once was a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dinky Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Well, I'm taking Algebra 2 in a foreign language. Oh, so you can talk to unicorns? <laughs> uh, exactly. Unless they're French. Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find the classes he really needed. Getting into college doesn't happen magically. Learn more at knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Ron Lieber, who's the author of The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. Ron, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about, I think, from the very beginning, since this is kind of a, a contrarian book in a lot of ways, why do we need to be talking about money now more than ever? I mean, what kinds of issues are kids these days facing that we weren't? Well, I think we're raising them for a different world than the one that many of us grew up in. And the thing that has become most apparent to me uh, writing about uh, not just parenting but also student loans and, and college debt and college financing over the last couple of years is that you know, these kids are going to turn into teenagers who are making six-figure decisions about their future. They are thinking about a flagship state university where if they do not get any need-based financial aid or any merit aid, uh, you know, they're probably going to pay $100,000, you know, for four or five years at a flagship state university. Private college could cost a quarter of a million dollars or more even. Now, again, that's before financial aid, right? But we've right. got 16- and 17-year-olds approaching this, uh, you know, without any financial training uh, at all. Many of them have barely handled money. They've never bought much more than, you know, a, a bicycle or a Sony PlayStation. And now all of a sudden we're asking them to make what may be the single biggest financial decision of their lives. And it's crazy. Well, are they going to make that or isn't that a decision that's going to be made by mom and dad eventually? Or at, at, at the core, right? I mean, if the parents say, look, we can't afford this business, you're going to have to go to community college for two years. Which it is might an argument work out that way. It might also work out in a way where the child decides, you know what, I really want to go to this school, um, and this school is offering me a quote-unquote financial aid package that, in fact, is studded with loans. And, you know, that's how you end up with kids going to, you know, George Washington or USC or NYU and coming out with $100,000 in debt. They just decide that, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm an adult. Uh, the school will allow me to sign for these loans, and the banks, um, you know, will give them to me, um, you know, as long as a, a parent or some other grown-up is willing to co-sign. Uh, which they often are because the kids sort of look up and, you know, bat their little eyes and say, this is what I really want, Mom. This is what I really want, Dad. And the 
adults have trouble saying no, and you know it ends up uh, it, you know in a situation that uh, everybody regrets when the kids are 23 and 24 and they're underemployed and they have you know many tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Do you think that this is going to get to a point like where we are with health care, where and the majority of people who file for bankruptcy are doing so because of health care costs and I mean, it just seems like we're kind of on the same path in a way. I'm not sure that that's exactly where we're headed. I mean, one of the issues with the bankruptcy laws right now is that it's very difficult to discharge student loan debt, uh, but that doesn't mean that it won't create, you know, other problems for you. And the question about, you know, the larger macroeconomic impact has to do with the fact that, well, okay, so two-thirds of American who graduate from college are coming out right now with some kind of student loan debt, and the average is $30,000. Now, you know, we put in programs the last couple of years at the federal level that will allow people who actually get themselves enrolled and who only have federal loans as opposed to the kind that comes from the bank um, to lower their payments according to their income. So, but, but you know, the, the, the larger question is still there, right? Is, is all of this debt mean that it's less likely that people will form families as soon as they used to or buy homes as soon as they used to? How will it affect uh, the purchase rates of, of first-time homes? So there, you know, there's definitely some impact. Um, and, you know, and I worry about some other things too, right? I mean, it's never been as essential as it is now to kind of get your 20s right financially. And, you know, we've shifted all of this risk, all of this responsibility onto ever younger uh, groups of people. You are, you know, totally responsible for your own retirement savings now. We know that. You know, maybe if you're lucky, uh, you know, your company throws you a couple of percentage points in matching, you know, in your 401k or 403b, but probably not, right? So you've got to do all that yourself. Um, Social Security isn't going to cover it. And, you know, we're also uh, in a world where it's increasingly clear that we probably have not taxed ourselves enough to pay for the promises that we've made for, for one another, yeah. the expectations that people have for what the government will do, you know, from sweeping the streets and taking away the garbage to, you know, providing Medicare in our retirement. And, you know, one way or another, you know, whether it's through higher taxes or through, you know, a decrease in government services, hmm. um, you know, all that's going to come home to roost. And that just means, you know, a couple extra percentage points out of everybody's income, including our kids. So you have yeah. to be ready to hit the ground running. And you're not going to be ready if you haven't been having these money conversations all throughout your childhood. You know, I had a conversation, I guess, probably about a year or so ago with a, a nice young woman who came come out of college in her, in her 20s. She actually came out of law school and got a job as a staffer for some congressman. And she and I were talking about it with some cocktail party. She was saying that she was sort of uh, likening it to the, the housing bubble in a way, that she said all these people are coming out of school, law schools and, and medical schools, with tons of debt, thinking that they're going to be able to get a good job. They can't get a job. They can never pay down their $250,000 worth of loans, which is what she had for, for law school. It, it just, you know, boom. I don't know. Right. It's so another... it's not clear, you know, how that pops. Um, it's, uh, you know, there may be some way that we haven't anticipated. I mean, you know, maybe there's a debt strike and people just refuse to pay. <laughs> um, but, you know, even if there were mass defaults, that would be a federal problem because a lot of these loans come from the federal government. It right. So right. much, a, a, you know, a bank problem. And even if it was a bank problem, it's a, you know, it's a, the banks that do lend privately. You know, Sally May might go out of business, right? But, but you know, this won't um, hit any of the big banks particularly hard. It's really more of a 
psychic impact, right? I mean, again, people are coming out with all this debt. Um, you know, many of them consider themselves unmarriageable. You know, nobody's going to want them with this, you know, big pile of debt. Or, you know, it's just the, um, you know, you think about it all the time. It, it sticks around for years. You know, in, in my yeah. reporting for the New York Times, uh, I ran across someone, a Nancy Farmer, who runs one of the um, big 529 college savings plans. And she said something to me that framed it in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. But she said, all of a sudden, when nobody was looking, college became one of those things that we pay for over decades instead of over years. So, you know, we're used to doing that with a 30-year mortgage, and we're used to doing that with, you know, 40 years of retirement saving or contributing to a pension fund. But college is now a 50-year proposition. That's half a century for many people because you save for 20 years and, you know, inevitably you don't have enough and then you, your kid, or both of you take on debt and then that debt can last for 30 years. So it's half a century. I mean, it sort of makes sense given how, you know, important the college decision is in all of our lives, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. if it's an outsized decision, it should be an outsized and well, I'm not even convincing myself here, right? <laughs> but we've, co we've come into the situation where all of a sudden college is that big too and sure. we haven't stopped to think about the implications of that. And so again, you know, to me it all comes back to getting kids ready. Um, it's a huge decision, and we have to spend a decade, you know, starting at six yeah. or seven, laying the groundwork. Well, let's start talking about that, about how you begin to have the conversations, because money is out there, you know, not just in the ways that we've been talking about, but, you know, you hear so much about income inequality seems to be a phrase that people throw around. And, you know, you've got the conservatives on one side who basically say, well, if you're going to be taking money from me to give to somebody else, that pretty much eliminates my interest in, in exceeding at anything. And then, you know, the liberals are saying the opposite of that, basically. And, and you know, kids who are not terribly financially savvy, or actually that would probably include most adults, too. Are, you know, nobody knows what to make of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, you know, look, you, you have to start somewhere, right? Um, it, you know, it's complicated. The grown-ups have complicated feelings about it. Um, but, you know, I think the one thing that we all need to do is resolve ourselves to the fact that, you know, these kinds of conversations are, are going to be necessary. Um, you know, no matter how the world looks 10 years from now or 20 years from now, you know, we want kids who are used to making these decisions. And so, you know, to me, uh, you know, there's a couple of ways you can go at it, right? You can wait for the kids to come to you, and inevitably uh, most of them will uh, because they are born to be curious. It's their job to figure out how the world works. Money is a source of mystery. And so it's only natural that they will ask questions and have questions, and you know, we should be ready to you know, answer them in an age-appropriate way and tell them the truth. Um, but another way to think about it, right, is there's a natural beginning point for starting the money conversations, and often it's the, the first time that the tooth fairy sails through the window because they get a little money under their pillow. You know, they sort of get a taste of it, and quite often they want some more because they know that if they get some more, they can buy more stuff. Talking with Ron Lieber, who's the author of The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to keep talking to Ron about allowances. We'll get into that tooth fairy thing and uh, how to get kids saving and giving money away as well. I'm Armin Brat. You're listening to Positive Parenting.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Ron Lieber, who's the author of The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. Just before the break, Ron, you mentioned the tooth fairy is kind of the, the way in the door away, that, that that's kind of the way kids are discovering a little bit about money. And I, I know that we're kind of up to five bucks a tooth now when I think I was getting a quarter, and that's way outpaced inflation, I think. So oh, without how, a doubt. Yes. Uh, you know, my wife and I were caught unaware uh, several years ago. You know, we hadn't planned for the moment. Our daughter lost her tooth. We weren't sure what to do. And we, you know, turned as many people do uh, these days for advice to our Facebook community. And um, there were almost 100 posts in two hours. People clearly really wanted to talk about this. We touched a nerve, I guess. And, um, you know, the range was everything from a dollar up to, you know, there were reports of uh, $100 bills in the oh sort of tonier suburbs of Westchester County outside of New York City. I just couldn't believe it. Um, you know, we ended up uh, grabbing a couple of uh, gold um, dollar coins from the subway machine at the corner, and, and, and that seemed to be uh, fine as far as our daughter was concerned. As long as they're but, shiny. you know, again, the point comes where, uh, you know, they get this money for the first time. Um, all of a sudden, they, um, you know, kind of understand its power. And, and they want some more. And that's a good time to start allowance, uh, you know, in order for them to get a little practice with money. Well, that leads right to the next thing with allowance and pay and chores. Is there a connection or should there be a connection? Well, quite often there is a connection because the parents decide, you know what, we're going to teach them a work ethic. We don't want them to feel entitled to the money. And so we are going to connect the distribution of allowance to the completion of chores in a satisfactory fashion. And, you know, there's nothing bad that's going to happen as a result of that. But I actually think that you should do it another way. I think allowance should be seen as a tool uh, for learning. Money is a, a, a teaching tool, just like a paintbrush or a musical instrument or a book. You know, there's no expectation that you have to earn it because we want kids to learn uh, to master money the same way we want them to master reading. And playing an instrument and doing art. And chores to me are something that they should absolutely do. They should do them in great volume. Uh, you know, we should be strict about them. Um, but they should do them for free because that's what grown-ups do. And if they don't get the chores done, you know, rather than using money or taking money away as a penalty, which, you know, starts to associate negative things with money, we should just take away the things that they love doing, right? The privileges, uh, the experiences we should take away soccer practice or we can take away screen time or whatever it is that they love to do, uh, you know, yeah. whatever it is they love to do most, uh, you know, we can use that as leverage and not money. Well, you talk about three jars, and that's something that, that I remember working with with, uh, with my dad, and I've tried to institute that with my kids. For some, we had four jars at one point. Um, there was sort of short-term savings and long-term savings was, mm -hmm. was the, the way that we had split it up. You, you have savings, give it away, and spend it, basically. How do you work the three jars in there? Are there, do you just let them make the decisions about what goes where, or, or do you have recommended percentages of money to be given away versus spent short-term, long-term? Uh, I, I don't have strong feelings about the amounts or the distribution as much as I do about the fact that there should be at least three. And I like the four-jar approach, too. You know, families often um, you know, sort of switch to that if they want their kids, you know, paying for college, uh, for instance. You know, it's a separate college fund from, you know, a general savings fund that goes to more shorter or medium-term goals. And, and that's all great. But, you know, as long as you've, you've got at least three, you're in good shape because I think it does two things for you. First of all, 
it uh, introduces the kids to the idea of a basic budget, right? Because that's what grown-ups do. You know, they spend a fair bit. They're hopefully, you know, saving 10 or 15% or more. And then, you know, they give away if they're lucky enough to have something extra. And, you know, they want to throw the rope back for people who have a little bit less. And so, you know, it's a, it's a very grown-up thing to do, to divide that money. Um, but the other thing I like about it is that the jars actually represent some of the values and, and virtues and character traits that we want to imprint upon them. And people don't always think about it this way, but you know, one of the things I was trying to drive home in the book is there's actually a direct connection between money and values, between um, you know, what we spend and, and, and save and, and who we give to and what we actually hold dear. So saving is you know, really just another word for patience and delayed gratification, you know, good life skills, right? Um, Spending is is uh, you know it works out better if you are modest and 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 you're thrifty and you're and you're prudent and you exercise uh, you know good decision making you know more values and virtues that um, have traditionally uh, been important to Americans who have done well and then of course gener- generosity and, and and giving you know those are connected and and are eventually connected to gratitude right sure. so you know all these things that we want to imprint on our silly little brains before we kick them out and. 18 or 20 or increasingly 25 or 30 years, um, you know, it all starts with allowance. Well, I think that's a, an, an easier thing to say if you are a parent who is actually setting a good example and is being thrifty and is saving. But there's so much pressure out there on basically buy it all. You can put it on the credit card because Capital One's going to give you 1% back or 2% back. I mean, y- you don't think really that in order to get that 1% back, you're going to have to spend a bunch. And you know, there, there, it seems like the the messages are not in favor of the kinds of things that you're talking about, about setting a good example, about spending reasonably, paying down your debts, and things like that, not incurring tons of credit card, uh, you know, because you just roll it over to a zero percent card. Sure. You know, it it just the it seems like the the messages that you're you're talking about doing at home are completely contradicted by what's in the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're absolutely right. I'm glad you brought it up. And so a couple of things about that. I mean, I went back and forth about whether there should be a, a chapter in the book, uh, you know, for parents alone, you know, kind of helping them, um, if, assuming there are two in the house, or, or if there's just one in the house, you know, helping them kind of have, these, have a conversation with themselves about, you know, just how good or bad their money habits are and how they could begin to shape them up before they begin to um, start teaching their kids. But you know the problem with that is that first of all, I started sounding too much like a like a marriage counselor, um, and the other one was that um, you know it occurred to me that you know one of the best ways to um, you know improve your own habits is is really is when you have to start you know sort of teaching the the basics to somebody else. And the thing that I love about financial transparency and encourage more transparency in families is that once you start having to explain yourself, you are also inevitably having to defend yourself. And if there are things about, you know, your spending or your habits that you know that your children will find problematic, it's generally a pretty good incentive, um, you know, for cleaning it up uh, all on its own. So transparency can actually be good for the grown-ups, too. And by transparency, you mean what exactly? Well, make sure that I'm, I'm understanding that I can, the way you're using so the I word. Can tell you, I'll tell you what the end game is, and then we can go back from there. I mean, to me, the end game is um, you know, your children should be mature, uh, discreet, and 
knowledgeable enough by 16 or 17 that you can comfortably tell them your income and your net worth so that they understand what it takes to provide the kind of life that they have, whatever kind of life that is. Wow. But that doesn't happen, you know, until 10 years of readiness minimum, right? There's, you know, three or four years of hardcore allowance and them getting used to spending and saving and buying and giving and, you know, building those basic foundational skills. And then I think, you know, once they're 10 or 11, you spend three or four years kind of slowly introducing them to every aspect of what the household spends money on. So, hmm. you know, there's all the things associated with your home, you know, including the rent or the mortgage, Um there are things like insurance, uh, you know, and if that doesn't bore them to death, uh, you know, maybe you eventually turn their whole clothing budget over to them and, and see how they do with that and see all the mistakes they make. And they make awesome mistakes. I mean, it's so much fun to watch and, you know, and watch them learn um, yeah. from the problems. Right. So you do all of that. They learn all about the household budget. And then you spend a couple of years making sure that they are really careful with private information. They're not getting into fights with their friends. Um, about secrets or gossip, um, that they're good with, um, you know, their siblings' secrets if they have them, with their parents' secrets. And then and only then are you ready to kind of tell them everything. But, um, you know, like I said, it takes, a, it takes a decade. And that's what I mean by transparency, right? If they know what it is that the family is spending, um, you know, the, the, the parent or parents in the house are probably going to be more careful once they know that they really are uh, – you know, sort of sharing things with their kids, and their kids are inevitably going to question them. been talking with Ron Lieber, who's the author of The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, Smart, and, and Smart About Money. And Ron is a financial columnist with The New York Times, and you have a Facebook page. Tell us about that. Sure. So, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I started the Facebook page. Uh, a couple of years ago, right when I started going down the road with this project, because, I mean, I'd learned over the years from all of the journalism that I'd done that, the, you know, the, the general principle of, you know, none of us are as smart as all of us, it, you know, is almost always true. And, and it's certainly true when it comes to parenting. And so, you know, I knew I had, you know, some, some basic ideas, some theses, you know, I was pretty sure they were true, but, you know, I wanted to be able to test ideas uh, out on people. And so I just started gathering anyone and everyone that wanted to come along for this ride um, and, you know, answer the questions that I was posing and comment on the articles. And, you know, we've now got a community there of four or 5,000 people at facebook.com slash Ron Lieber author. Uh, you know, we're almost every day we're kicking something around. And, um, you know, I learned so much from, from those folks, uh, you know, several of whom ended up in the book. It, it, there's no way it would have worked. Uh, uh, it, there's no way it would have turned into the project that it turned into. Uh, without that help. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I invite anyone and everyone, uh, you know, to come uh, listen in. Great. Ron, thanks very much. Great to have oh, you. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.